Don't know if you're familiar with the story behind that song, but it's a, it's a, a song born out of suffering and tragedy where a, uh, the coming home from teen camp, I believe it was, with the youth group, right, Ron? Ron knows the story pretty well. Uh, the, the pastor's son, who's the youth pastor and the family, uh, and teens, bus tragedy flipped over, a number of them died, and that song was written for that church to say, hey, even in through suffering and trials, I'm still with you. I'm still present through all of that. So as you sing through that song and you hear that, some of that, that dynamic of that story really brings home the fact that in the midst of tragedy, trials, difficulties, sufferings in life, there's, there's a comforting God who's with us all the time. And as we go to First Peter, we're going to talk about that comforting God tonight. So let's take some time to go into First Peter. First Peter chapter 1, as we pick up in our study, and talking about our great salvation and continuing on a study that we started two weeks ago. And we're just going to keep working through this passage here, uh, the book of First Peter. And have you ever been in one of those conversations where you ask yourself, how did we get here? I mean, I often jokingly with Pastor Tony, I feel like every time I have a conversation with Pastor Tony, we end up and I'm like, how do we get here? Because it's like, bing, 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 you know, you're, you're all over. You know, it's like squirrel. Okay, yep. And oh, there we go again. Have you ever been in one of those conversations where you're talking with your friends and about 30 minutes in, you're like, how do we start on this? And we ended up all the way over here. You know, we talk about, oh, we digress to this or whatever it is. Well, that's what happens here in First Peter, especially in verses 3 to 12. Now, what is interesting about this passage, when we look at, we look at, uh, let me go back. There we go. Uh, verses 3 to 12, it is a complete run-on sentence. For those of you who are grammar gurus and love it, this verse or sentence, verses 3 through 12, even though in our English translations, we all have their periods. You'll see one like at the end of verse 5, and there's no punctuation like that in the Greek. Peter just goes from one thought to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. And for 48 or 58 Greek words, like it is one complete sentence. He doesn't stop. It is a run-on of run-ons and run-ons. The only, the only run-on that's longer is in Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul does, and I think he beats Peter by like four words. I don't know if they're having a, a competition to see who is going to have the longest sentence in the Bible, but Paul wins in Ephesians chapter 1. Peter comes in second place here with this. And so because of that, it makes this passage extremely difficult to outline. You start look. I have I have probably fourteen different outlines of this passage that I have worked through in the last two weeks, and I wasn't happy with any of them. I felt like I was playing theological pinball with Peter. You think about it. Look at all the stuff he's covered in these verses. He goes from the relationship of God and Jesus to regeneration and the new birth and according to God's mercy, and that you have this living hope unto the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he talks about the security of our salvation that it's kept by God. And then he goes from there and he's going to talk about the future of our salvation. And then he ends up from the future of our salvation and he goes to the rejoicing of trials. And, and you're just, that's how you feel when you're reading through it. And it's like, I could unpack every single one of those things. They're so beautiful and rich and deep. And it's like, okay, Peter, help me out here. You know, Pastor Kim this morning gets a passage where you shake the Bible and an outline falls out of it because it's just so right there. Everybody reads it. You're like, yeah, that makes sense. You go through this passage and you're like, uh, so for those of you who have the engineering mind, for those of you who are spreadsheet people, forgive me now, because this outline does not go with the Western mindset, our capital, you know, our main point one, 
subpoint, subpoint, subpoint. Let's go back out. It doesn't have that. Now you could, and that's the weird thing about the passage, is you can have a little one from this verses three to five. You could have a little outline for verse six and seven. You can have another one for like eight and nine and then 10, 11, and 12. And you can get four little outlines and you can preach four separate messages and we could do that. But I also wanna be respectful to the text, not just what Peter says, but how Peter says it. Peter doesn't stop. He just, he just lets it out in praise to God. He says, blessed be the God of our Father and Father, Lord Jesus Christ. Of our, of our, wow, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. And then he just keeps going. He says, this is why I'm praising God. And he goes and goes and goes. So when I was starting to put this together in my mind and working through all those different outlines and feeling like I have a hole in my wall because I beat my head against the wall so many times on it, I started looking, I'm like, wait, you know, this reminds me of one of those CSI crime boards where you have like the post-it note here and then you're going to have the string and it connects it to this next one. And then he finishes this and he's going to connect it and it, it's only going to be a word or two that connects it. But Peter is logically and theologically connecting this whole passage together, but it does not fall into a nice outline. It's, you're not going to be able to just walk out and I want to be able to say that that's what we want to do. Want to understand the text, what it says, but also how it says it. So the notes tonight have very few blanks. You can write what you want. You cannot write anything. You can color and draw all over them. You can go ahead. Okay. Someone already told me they got all the crayons. No, um, you, you do write down what you want to write down, but let's walk through this text together and see what, what really sparked Peter. What got him going on this passage that he just for for what, nine, ten verses here just brain dumps all his theology quickly into a wonderful and glorious message. So he starts off where we covered two weeks ago with our great salvation. Verses three to five, he talks about, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy, what has he done? He's begotten us, again, to a living hope uh, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he talks about our salvation being that wonderful work of God, that according to God's mercy, he born us again, anew. He regenerated us. He made us into a new creation. So we're now this, this new person because of the wonderful work of God. And then as we unpack last time, our salvation is this wonderful gift from God. What has he given us in this new birth? He's given us this living hope. It's not that we're looking and saying, oh, I hope this might happen. It is a sure confidence that we have in Jesus Christ, that as we anchor our soul to him, we have this hope that it's not a dead hope, but because Jesus Christ is alive, he is resurrected from the dead. It is a living hope that we have, that the first fruits of our resurrection, Jesus Christ, that one day we will be resurrected again, that we have a secured inheritance. Remember, it said in verse four, where it talks about that this inheritance, it's incorruptible, undefiled, doesn't fade away, that is reserved for us in heaven. So it is secured, and it's not only just a guarantee, it has been guaranteed by God himself. In verse five, it talks about who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the, the last time. So yes, we are saved, but we will be saved one day from all of the wrath of God, from all of this, the sinful treacherousness of this, this earth. And so Peter, just in, in those short verses, and we unpacked that the last time, that there is a wonderful gift 
and a wonderful work of God and salvation. And we are the heirs of that. We are benefiting from that gift of God. And then Peter looks in verse, uh, he takes in verse six and he is going to transition. He's going to say, okay, our majestic hope, and this is where we ended the last time, a final salvation should lead us to do what Peter did. Blessed be the God and Father. He, he does that. And he draws this little line. It's one word. He says, wherein. He looks and says, wherein you greatly rejoice. He takes us on a pastoral journey. Peter says, okay, you have this future salvation. You have this inheritance that is secured and kept by God. But that's then. What about now? What's happening right now? And Peter moves us pastorally from the future that we're going to experience. And he says, we're in right now, in the present, that theology is still good for you. He's like, you're struggling in hard times, but you're greatly rejoicing. He says, because of your secured salvation, that's what the wherein points back to, the secured salvation that we have, the, the assurance that we know that, that God is going to keep us and save us un, unto the uttermost. He says, because of your secured salvation, you believers are already finding joy in your suffering. Verse six is not a, you must rejoice in trials. It is a, an indicative statement. He's saying, this is the way it is. He's saying, right now, you're in the midst of these hard times, and yet you're rejoicing. The reason you're rejoicing is because you're looking to the future hope of your salvation. Your eyes, your perspective are looking forward to what God is going to do and God is doing in your life in the future. And so as these individuals are going through these really hard times, the sufferings that we've talked about, the, the persecutions that they're facing, the trials that are coming because of their faith, and they're leaving a wake in, the, in their society because they're standing for righteousness, they're pledging allegiance to Christ instead of the world that they're living in, they're, they're facing hardships and difficulties. And so Peter, Peter looks and says, okay, the believers, as we, as we go, he says, where and we're in these great trials. And what does he do? He jumps from our great salvation and he brings us into this present difficulty. He says, let me talk about the sufferings, the trials that you're facing and the difficulties that you're having. And he says, these believers were in the midst of trials. We know that. We know that from the background studies that we did. But notice what he says. He says, trials, they're not permanent. He says, they're yet for a season. Okay, so though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. So Peter now takes this one verse and he says, let me, let me just give you a synopsis of suffering and trials. He doesn't give us a Job account where we got, you know, 50 chapters of it. He doesn't unpack it like James does in, in James chapter one and two. He, he doesn't do that. He looks and says, trials are not permanent. They're for a season. Even if a trial or a suffering that we face last for the rest of our life in the scope of eternity, which he's reminding them that's where we need to be looking. He says, that's but for a short time. He says, trials are not guaranteed, or are they? This is a little question here. Notice in verse, uh, verse six there. He says, though not for a season, now for a season, if need be, that, that word, those words there, if need be, they, there's two different ways that it comes out. It comes out as a hypothetical, so he say, is, is Peter saying, well, if you need to face trials, that's the hypothetical. That goes back to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 12, say all those who are living uh, godly will suffer persecution or suffer, suffer trials. 
So is, is Timothy looking and saying, well, it's a hypothetical, it might happen? Or is he saying, you know, the reality is when we live godly lives, there will be suffering that we face. We struggle with that. We don't like that idea, but yet as believers, when we live godly lives, we face those difficult challenges in our, in our culture. So is it a hypothetical saying, well, if you need me? Well, part of the problem with that is what are these people facing at that moment? They're facing sufferings, aren't they? They're facing trials. They're facing those difficulties. So is it a hypothetical or could it be the possibility, which the other option is, it's a divine necessity that trials, that the sufferings that we face when we are living righteously as believers in this world, they serve a sovereign purpose. That we don't like them, and yet we look and say, if they need be, or since they need to be. So Peter looks and says, is he saying, eh, if, you, if you have to, or is he saying, hey, you're going through these, and these need to be here, and there's a purpose for these trials that you're facing. And notice what he says. The trials are not the same for everybody. He talks about that they are of manifold temptations or, or trials. They're, they're different types. The, you may face a different suffering than I may face. We, Pastor Kim went through all those different uh, people who are facing all those different trials this morning because of standing for righteousness. They're all different. Uh, yeah, there's, there's similarities, and yet there's differences. The sufferings that you may face are going to be different than the sufferings that I may face. And, and it goes on and on. Peter says there's, there's different types of trials and difficulties we can have. But notice what he says here. He says that in these trials, in these difficulties, you are in heaviness. The word is you're vexed. And you are vexed from pressures from the outside. It's not a temptation, the, the, the King James has temptation here like, oh, I gave into a sin and so therefore I'm reaping my consequences. That's not what this passage is talking about. This passage, when it's talking about the vexing of the, the manifold temptations, the pressures that are coming on me because of how I'm living, because of the outside forces of this world, there is a heaviness that these believers are facing. And yet Peter says, in the midst of that, you're rejoicing. You're working through this. You have found a way to rejoice because you're not focusing just on this. You're focusing on the eternal perspective of what God has, God has given to us. And so I think it's important for us to understand that as we look at suffering, that word vexed, it's not like, hey, this is just great. You know, I love Jesus. I'm going to be happy through everything. No, they're, they're hurting. When we go through suffering, doesn't it hurts? It's emotionally draining. It's physically at times hurtful and, and battling. And yet God says that these sufferings, the trials that come in, they're helpful. They're going to benefit us in our growth. And, and how do we know that? Paul, uh, Peter is going to bring us into the next part. But I like this statement by Wearsby. He says, the trials of our life, of life, test our faith to prove its sincerity. A faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. Think about that for a moment. Would you would you decide that you're just going to start driving a car that's never been test-driven before? It comes right off the assembly line. No, no one's ever test-driven it. They've never done crash tests. They don't know if anything works. Testing is good. You want to know that it's, it's genuine, that it's real. You, I'm not going to get into a plane that's never been the, the, oh, new model. We're going to put five wings on an airplane because we think it's going to be great. Oh, great. I'll be the first one to fly that. Why would I want to be the? No, no, thank you. I want it tested. Testing helps us to trust. 
testing shows that something is genuine. He, he goes on, and this is why we don't like sometimes this idea. He says, a person who abandons his or her faith when the going gets tough is only proving that they have not faith at all. We don't like those types. That's a, that's a pretty bold statement because we look in our lives we know family members. We know people who it got tough and they've, they've walked away from the faith. But we're looking and we're like, but no, I, I, I need to know that they're going to be in heaven. So I'm hoping that, you know, the prayer they prayed when they were four, that'll be sufficient. And yet you look at Scripture and it's like, if, wait, if they're denying the faith, they're walking away, they're denying who Jesus is, even though they prayed a prayer four years old in VBS, you've got to wrestle with the text of Scripture and say, wait, are they, are they genuinely saved? So we don't like that idea of, People who walk away from the faith, could they potentially not be saved? And yet we have to look at Scripture and say, it very well could be. That's hard because we all have individuals we want to be saved, and yet we look and say, are they proving that they don't have faith at all? Because in the midst of suffering and trials, they've walked away. And you say, well, how do, where does Scripture talk about that? Look at, look at what happens. Peter draws the line. He says, you're in the midst of these, these hard times, these sufferings of these trials, and he says, that the trial of your faith, verse 7, he's going to connect it here. He's going to take that idea of trials, he's going to take that idea of the suffering, and he's going to say, that the trying of your faith, and he's going to move us from trials and the suffering into our faith. And he's going to say, what are these trials proving? What is the suffering showing? What is the, what is the reality of what is happening? And he says here, that the trial of your faith, the trial literally means, does anybody have a different, uh, different translation that says something different than that the trial of your faith? The proving, doesn't it? The proof of your faith. It is literally, is your faith genuine? The word that's used here, Peter's going Peter's to mix metaphors. He's going to talk first about the proving of your faith. It is the, the, it's a pottery metaphor. So you take the pottery, you fashioned it, you put it through the fire, you pull it out, and then what would happen was the individual would hold it up to the light and they would look. And if there were no cracks in it, then they would call it dokamas, that it was proved to be genuine and that it was good. If it did not have it, if it had cracks from the firing, from the testing, from the proving, then they would not put that stamp on it. They would say it's not genuine. And Peter uses that word, and he says, the trying of our faith, the proving of a genuineness. It's dokimas. Is it that? And so Peter, Peter looks and says, okay, all of these, the sufferings, the hardships, the trials, how we go through them, it is a proving ground for our faith. And so he, he ties it in. He's literally saying, so that the purpose of the sufferings, so that the purpose of these trials is to demonstrate the genuineness of our faith. And Peter says, that's a hard pill to swallow, but when we go through these, so is there a divine necessity? Is there a divine purpose to suffering and to trials as we live righteously? As we, Peter says, absolutely. And we have to continually keep our focus on Jesus Christ and how he is, he is bringing, us, bringing us through that. And so he gives it, it's really the practical purpose of what the trial is for, of what the sufferings that they're facing, the different types, the different ways. But he says, it will prove the genuineness of your faith. 
And so he talks about our genuine faith, and he, go, he jumps to the next post-it note. He brings us to a new part, but he talks about our faith. The idea of our faith is it's our steadfast loyalty, our commitment to someone or something. So our faith, talking about our faith in Jesus Christ, obviously, is our steadfast loyalty and commitment to, to Christ. And through the sufferings, do we remain faithful to him? And, and look what he says. I love this. This is, this is really neat. He talks about your faith, my faith, verse 7. He says, The trying of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes. He says, Your faith that is on trial, that is being tested, not, not on trial, but is being tested. He says, That is more precious than the thing we hold most precious. As, as humans, gold, I mean, if I see gold on the street, I'm, I'm going to go pick it up. Even if it's in the middle of a five-way lane highway and there are bars of gold out there, guess what? I'm going to play Frogger and I'm going to run after the, run after to get the gold because we hold it as precious. And God looks and says, more precious than the gold is your genuine faith. He says, that is the most precious commodity that you and I own. Gold perishes. Genuine faith does not. It is invested in heaven. It is imperishable. Remember, incorruptible. He talks about that back up in verse 3, using that similar word. He's saying your, your faith doesn't perish. That's why I can go through the hardships and the sufferings and the trials, because my eyes aren't on that. My eyes are on God, my salvation, my future salvation. He says your faith will be tested with, tried with fire. The, uh, the verse here where it goes on, it says, though it be tried with fire. Some people looking, oh, well, it's talking, about, it's talking about the gold is going to be tried with fire. The, the wording here actually ties this testing back to your faith in the first part of the verse. That though your faith, which will be tested, it's more precious than gold, but it will be tried. It will go through and face those difficulties where you're going to have to take a stand and say, where does my allegiance lie? Where, where is it? Is it okay, it's suffering, it's difficult, there's a lot of oppression, there's a lot of difficulty coming against me. You know what, I don't think the church thing, I'm, I'm just gonna sort of, you know, chill out on the God thing. Or am I gonna look and say, wait, no, I have to take a firm stand on whatever, whatever the issue is, whatever the difficulties are, because that is important, because the genuine testing of our faith, look what it, look what it comes to. Verse seven is neat. It's, just, it's loaded with a whole bunch of stuff that are the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though our faith is tried by fire, our faith might be found to what? The praise and the honor and the glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. There is a shared, this is one of the unique verses of the New Testament, where usually when we see praise, honor, and glory, who's it instantly attributed to? Who gets the, it's, it's God, it's Jesus, right? He gets the praise, honor, and glory. The, the genuine believer who goes through the sufferings and faces the trials and battles and goes through them faithfully shares in the praise, honor, and glory when Christ appears. That there, it is part of the celebration that you get to be part of and experience in a small way the praise and the honor and the glory that's going to go to God and we're going to deflect it back to God. And yet Peter says, your faithfulness, your genuine faith through these trials lets you and will allow you to, at the appearing of Jesus Christ one day, experience in a small way the praise and the honor and the glory that's going to go to our great Savior. 
God looks at our sufferings and our genuineness and our staying the course for faithfulness as extremely important to say we can do this and I want you to do this and he wants us to experience some of those blessings. And this faith that we have, Peter just continues going on. He says our faith that we have, it's not based on a perceptual experience. In other words, well, I'll have faith if you can prove to me all of this. I'll have faith if you can show me Jesus Christ. I'll have faith to you if you can, if I can hear this from Jesus. Now, they're living in a time where they could have been very close to somebody. I mean, Peter saw Jesus. Peter walked with Jesus. And so they could have very easily based it upon a, this is what I've felt. This is what I've experienced. But Peter looks and says, wow, this faith that you have going through your trials, you Asian Christians living in in Asia Minor at that time, he looks and says, your faith is outstanding because it's not based on something you felt. It's not based on something you've seen. He looks and says in verse number eight, he says, your faith has been demonstrated by loving him who you have not seen. Isn't that us? I mean, anybody, maybe I shouldn't ask you because someone might raise their hand. Anybody seen Jesus lately? No, we have not seen him. And yet, we love him. If you love him, what are you doing? You're keeping his commandments. You're, you're living out his ways day by day. In the midst of the heart, even when it doesn't seem to make sense, I'm going to live according to God's word because that is me demonstrating my love, my faith, even though I have not seen him. And he goes on and he says, faith is demonstrated in believing in him who you currently cannot see, which seems a little redundant to us because we're like, well, we can't see him. And yeah, we still can't see him. But for them, the, the believers living at that time, he's looking and saying, you didn't see him, you haven't seen him before, you're not seeing him now, and yet you're still faithfully loving and you're believing. The word believing here is actually the, the verb form of the word faith. So he's saying you're faithing your faith. You're living out your faith in every day. He says, you haven't seen him. I love that it's implied here is the fact that, have you, ever, have you ever said to somebody, I can't do that right now. But implied in that is usually, but I can do that in the future. And Peter uses the wording here. He says, you don't see him right now, but, but what are they going to do one day? They're going to see him. And so they're living right now in their life, living out their faith, showing their love for somebody they haven't seen, somebody they're not currently seeing, but because they know that one day they are going to see him, that one day they are going to experience the salvation of their souls from the wrath of God, that they are going to enter into the presence of the one who has loved them and cherished them and given his life for them. And so Peter looks and says, wow, you're able to rejoice in your trials You're able to go through all of this because your faith is genuine. It's the real deal. Because you're showing your love. You're showing your obedience. You're showing your commitment to the one who has redeemed you, who has borne you again, even in the midst of your sufferings. And so he is blessing God because of the way that these believers are fleshing out their faith. Our faith is evidenced by a joyful delight 
that really becomes too great to express in words. Verse 8, verse eight we've probably one of the verses we know from this passage where it says, Whom he had not seen, you rejoice, but you rejoice with joy that is unspeakable. Have you ever been through a situation, a difficulty, a trial, and someone looks at you and says, I don't know how you did that, and you're like, it's God. And that's all you've got. It's, it's, it, you're, you're joyful, you're humbled, you're blown away by the fact that, yes, you were able to handle this suffering, this, this difficulty, but you have no words to ex- explain that joy. It's a joy that's unspeakable because God has helped you to endure. God has helped you through, and your faith has remained faithful. And you look and you're just like, this is great. This is amazing. No, the trial really hurt. It stunk. I didn't like that. But wow, God has really been faithful to me. He has got me through this. And so he looks and he says, hey, we, we can have this joyful delight as we're going through. And the reason we rejoice, he says, with this joy unspeakable is because we've obtained, it gives us that assurance that we've obtained this genuine faith. It's like, why, why would Peter go through and allow himself to be crucified upside down? Why would he go through? Why would Paul let himself, you know, face the, face the chopping block, so to speak? John, allow himself to be boiled in oil. And they, they show all of this faithfulness through these hard times But they know because the end result is what it says in verse 9, the salvation of our souls. There's such a depth and appreciation by the New Testament writers for their salvation that they look and say, it is because I am saved. It is because I will be saved. Because I am being saved currently right now from the battles of sin. They look and they say, this is so impacting that it allows me to go through the hardest of times in this world. And when we continue to, to plumb the depths, mine the depths of our salvation, and understand the more and more as we continue to grow, we start to realize I can endure the sufferings. I can face these unsettling times because there is something far, far greater. And I can't even put it all into words because it is just this joy that is unspeakable, the salvation of my soul, that God is going to redeem me, that God has bought me, and he's not letting me go, and he is securing me in heaven. Is this present? Is this future? That's, that's the weird thing. And I put a little thing in your notes. You'll see the word future, and I'll explain here. Salvation is not simply a future deliverance, but it's also a present possession. It is, it is theologically correct to say, I have been saved, It is theologically correct to say I am being saved. It is theologically correct to say I will be saved. And we look and we're like, well, which one is? Yes, it's all of them. I am experiencing, if you are a believer here tonight, you are experiencing salvation right now. It is a present possession. You are saved from sin. You are saved from the shackles of sin. You are able to experience that. And yet one day I will be ultimately saved from all of that sin, all of the wrath of God, and I have been saved. There was a point when I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So when we plumb these depths, when we start to understand my salvation is not simply future, but it's also present, we look and I say, put a little asterisk by that word future there. Because Peter, Peter gets us thinking about the end time. He says, hey, re- re- receiving the end of your faith 
even the salvation of your soul. So he steps now back. He, he, went, he started in the future, your salvation that's going to be there. He pastorally steps in for a few moments and says, let's talk about the suffering. Let's talk about the hardships in the present. And now he's going to step back out and say, you're experiencing this, but let me tell you again about the end, that great salvation. And let me tell you how great your salvation is. He says it is such a privileged position. The assurance of our salvation uh, its, its future inheritance really is gained during these seasons of present suffering. As I go through the hardships, as I face the difficulties, I gain more and more assurance of my faith because it's not God has forgotten me. It is God is anchoring himself. I'm anchoring myself to God and he is getting me through this. And Peter says, it's such a privileged position that we have. And he goes, he goes on this other tangent, which really seems odd. Because this is the one that's like, at first you're like, how does this fit into the passage? He says, our salvation that we have, that we possess, look what he says, it's been sought by the prophets. In verse number, verse number 10 there. Of the salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. The Old Testament prophets, who most of us would probably look back and say, wow, those guys, they understood it all. They had it all figured out. I mean, Daniel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah, those guys knew how to plumb the depths and understand. Man, I've used that phrase like five times now. I'm going to stop using it. Um, They look and they say, wow. They must know the truths of God's salvation. They must have understood far more than I do right now. There's no way I could be like those men. And yet the words here that they inquired, that they searched diligently, what were they searching for? To understand God's grace and salvation. They were longing to to wrap their heads around what we can articulate in a few sentences. That we can look and say, this is what God has done. This is the grace. It was because of the Messiah, who they didn't know who the Messiah was. They just knew that a Messiah was coming. We can look back and say, it's Jesus Christ. We can look back and say, he didn't just stay in the ground. He rose again. They would look and they were inquiring and trying to understand, how is he going to write a new law upon our hearts? How is he going to, how is this spirit that doesn't indwell us all the time? How is this spirit going to, to continually maintain it and work in them in a new way? We're on this side of the cross, and we can look and say, whoa, look, our salvation, it's all rooted in Jesus Christ, the one who the prophets looked forward to but didn't understand everything about it. And Peter is looking and saying, we understand even more than theirs. They say our salvation. Have you ever thought about your salvation is a fulfillment of prophecy? Your salvation, my salvation, is a fulfillment of the prophets. Look at verse 10. It says, they're, they're searching diligently of the grace that should come unto you. They knew that this, this grace that was coming through the Messiah, it was something that was future. They knew that it was down the road. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify. So when they're searching, when they're trying to understand about this Messiah and the sufferings of the Messiah, as Isaiah talks about, and as Ezekiel talks about in uh, the, the, the new covenant that we're going to experience, they're all writing these things, and yet they didn't understand all of them. They were searching diligently, trying to understand the depths of God's theology, uh, the depths of God's grace. The salvation that we experience now which will be consummated in the future, was prophesied by these men in the past. 
And as it was sought out by the prophets, they were searching, verse 11, very interesting words. They, they were searching for the time and the context. In other words, when is this Messiah coming? We know a Messiah is coming. And what's going to be the things that are the, the signs of the time, the discerning? So even the prophets are doing what we do now for the second coming. Like, okay, what are the end times like? What are the signs of the time? What is it going to be like? And we're wondering what time and what context Christ is going to return in. And yet we don't understand all of that. The Old Testament prophets, Peter's saying, they were searching. They were trying to understand when this Messiah was coming, what were going to be the events surrounding it. They didn't understand all of that. And yet we can look back and say, let us tell you about that. We know more. Daniel talks about it. He asks, you know, he's like, Lord, I don't understand all of this. I'm reading Jeremiah, trying to understand his writings. Can you help me? And God begins to unfold the, the epics of time with the statues and the beasts. And he does that to help him understand a little bit more. Jeremiah, the same thing. He's like, Lord, I'm chewing on this. I'm, I'm devouring your word, but yet I still don't understand all of it. Help me to understand. So the prophets even looked and said, we don't even understand all of the grace that is occurring. And yet we can look at this end and look back and say, you know what? All that they talked about, all that they longed for, we experience. We get to enjoy. We can articulate more than, did you ever think you'd be able to say that I can explain a little bit more of the grace of God than Daniel? I mean, I almost thought there was lightning bolt going to come down. I, it's, just, it's just one of those beautiful things that says we understand a lot. And our salvation is amazing. We are in such a privileged position. Verse 12, notice what it says. It says, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things. The prophets were prophesying to minister to us. I think this is one of the verses that is a reason we should study the prophets. We should study some of their prophecies. It's important. But they wrote for us to be able to experience and to understand. Sure, it takes work. The prophets are not one we just dive into and say, ooh, let's read, you know, Habakkuk today. But it's a, good, it's a great book. A number of the young adult ladies, they went through it and they loved it. You know, it's, it's a deep book. It's a rich book. But we don't just jump in all the time. And yet they write these things for us. We, in our salvation, are in such a privileged position that the prophets longed to be part of it. Our salvation that's talked about here it was testified by, uh, by the Spirit of Christ. Did you catch that? In verse number uh, 11, Searching of what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which in them did signify or testify. So the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is working in these prophets to talk about, and what does he highlight? He highlights the suffering of Christ. The Holy Spirit is telling the prophets that the Messiah is going to suffer. Then he says that he's going to experience the glory, or literally the glories that should follow. The, the, the Spirit of God tells, the Holy Spirit tells these prophets, when you're writing, here's what's going to happen. This Messiah, this one who's going to come, he's going to suffer. And then there's going to be glory. And we look at the theology of suffering in the New Testament and what happens with believers. Before there is glory, there is often suffering. Glories follow suffering. Neither Christ 
nor his people receive the crown of glory without the crown of thorns. Christ suffered first, and if, if we are following our master, what can we expect in life? Difficulties, hardships, the vexing of spirits, the, the, the oppression that may come because we stand for righteousness. You might be that, become that, that farmer who, you know, in Michigan, I don't know if you read recently, there was a farmer in Michigan who... Um, they had chosen, they were using their, their farm for wedding venues, and they said, we're not going to allow uh, a wedding between a homosexual couple. And so then the, the city of Flint said, well, guess what? You can't sell your goods anymore at our farmer's markets. You're not, they took away any, buy, they have no selling license in the city of Flint. They can't go to any of the farmer's markets and sell because they took a stand for righteousness sake. They, t- they, made, they made a wake in the culture. And yes, it brought, and, and the, I think the thing that we're going to battle with some of this in our culture is, well, maybe they were just foolish and they should have just, you know, not made waves. When we're living for righteousness sake, we're going to make waves. There's going to be that. And so as we live for righteousness, we can expect when our, for our test, our faith to be tested. He goes on in this message of salvation. It's not just looked at by the prophets. But it is longed for and then preached by, the, by individuals uh, with the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 12 says in the middle there, which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. And you're looking and saying, okay, let's, let's unpack that a little. The word, the word here that's used is for reported is, is literally the word angeled. It's, it's the same word that's going to be used here just at the end of the sentence. He says, these people came with a message. An angel is what? They're a messenger, right? So they're bringing, these people brought you a message. And the word that's used for preach is not the word for a preacher standing up here and preaching. It's the word evangelize or evangelion. It is saying that there were people who came to you and they reported a message to you and proclaimed to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. So not only was it longed for by the prophets, but there are people right now in your life, and he's telling these people who've came and they sacrificed and they went to you with this gospel that's so precious. And, and who is empowering the giving of the gospel? They came to you with what? The Holy Spirit. That goes right along with us today. As we go out into a world that is hostile against God, and we say we have a message that is amazing, that has changed our lives, that you need, as we report that to people and we evangelize, whose authority and power do we go in? It's the Holy Spirit. He goes with us. I am with you always. This is not a me versus them. This is not a us versus the... This is... Me sharing what the Holy Spirit wants, wants me to share. This is God versus the world, and I'm just the messenger. You know, and we say don't shoot the messenger, boy, but that may come. But for right now, let's declare the message because it's such a privileged position to be in. And, and notice how he, he ends it. How did we get here? How, if, if, if you just look at the last, you're like, okay, uh, which things the angels desire to look into? How do we get there? Well, Peter, Peter draws the line. But he says, even the angels, our, our salvation, it's so privileged that even the angels above, 
they're looking intently to get a glimpse of God's grace at work. They rejoice when someone gets saved. They look and they're like, the most spiritual beings we can think of, the angels, confirmed in all of their holiness, they want to pull back the curtains and watch the grace of God at work. They want to see how salvation is working in your life in the midst of trials. They want to see how a soul gets saved because they don't, they don't experience salvation like we do, but they want to see God's grace at work. They want to see how it is, how it is unfolding in, the, in the, the history of time. That is such a privileged position that we have. That is a great salvation that is secured in heaven. You, just, you walk through the passage and he, just, he does the, the theological pinball. I'm praising God. Peter says we need to praise God. Why? Because he, he, just, he unfolds it. Because I have a security in heaven of my future salvation and God is guaranteeing it, uh, it to me that even in the midst of the trials that I face in verse six, the manifold different sufferings that are there, he can help me and enables me to get through because it is a testing ground. It is proving my faith. And as my faith is demonstrated as true and genuine, it is something that is glorious. How glorious is this salvation that I possess, that I start to see that I have, that even the prophets talked about it, even the angels angels long to look into it. And it is a gospel that I need to proclaim. Peter encapsulated it all and he just can't, all he can say is, bless me God. Because our salvation is so magnificent. Knowing Jesus gives us a clearer picture of salvation than the prophets ever knew. And we are reminded as we look at this passage that our pain and our suffering, they do not diminish the living hope that has been given to us through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to face hard times. It is a divine necessity that our faith be tried, that it be shown. We've been in a privileged state in the American church to not have to face a lot of that. And yet, when it comes, it is a testing ground for our faith and our majestic hope of final salvation that, I, that God is not going to let me go, that he's not going to turn me loose, it should lead us to praise God in any of life's circumstances because our hope and our faith, it is anchored to Christ in the midst of all of those various trials, those sufferings, those difficulties we face. And that is why Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now he's going to take that whole theological premises and he's going to say, okay, now let's talk about the real practicals of life. Let's talk about, as we, we flesh out the rest of the book, holy living in this world. Let's talk about uh, our relationship to Christ as the cornerstone. Let's talk about, in verse chapter 2, our relationship to the government and then to our work environment, our slaves and masters. Let's talk about husband and wife relationships in the family. Let's talk about, and he says, all of that that can cause all these difficulties and all these hardships, we all come back to this deep-rooted, changed life because of our salvation in Jesus Christ. A privilege and a joy through all the hardships of life. Let's continue to focus on our anchor, Jesus Christ, and praise him for the glorious salvation that he has given to us.